As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, the scriptures tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. Plant that word deep in our hearts this day, that it may take root and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week in his sermon, Josh introduced us to the character of Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. The stories of Jacob, which are told in the book of Genesis, the first book of our Bible, are basically an ancient soap opera. They are stories of love and deception, intrigue and tragedy, and most of all, of family, with all its flaws and dysfunction. They are stories that reveal, often without even mentioning God, that in all this drama, God is present and working through even the most flawed human beings to achieve God's purpose and fulfill God's promises. So last week, we heard how Jacob was born after his twin brother Esau, but then schemed and deceived to rob his brother of both his birthright and blessing. After tricking his brother and his father to get that blessing, Jacob's mother advises him to run away and stay with her brother Laban, Because Esau is so mad at what Jacob has done that he is plotting to kill him. So Jacob gets out of town, and on his way, he has a dream in which God speaks to him, promising to be with him and to give him offspring as ubiquitous as the dust of the earth. When he gets close to his uncle Laban's house, he meets and instantly falls head over heels in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. In a scene straight out of a meet-cute movie, Jacob tries to impress Rachel by moving this enormous stone off of a well, the ancient equivalent of a singles bar, and then waters all of Rachel's sheep. Rachel then takes Jacob home and introduces him to her father Laban, who embraces his nephew, and in a comment whose irony we will only understand later, says to him, surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So we pick up the story today after Jacob has stayed and worked for Laban and his family for about a month, and it's time for them to decide what's next. So hear this reading from Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 through 28. If you want to follow along, it's on page 25 in your pew Bibles. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. This is the word of the Lord. So with all the heat and humidity we've been experiencing, maybe you won't mind thinking back with me to January when we celebrated Epiphany, the story of the Magi following the star in the east to find the Christ child. For several Sundays, you might remember, we offered star words, these little cards with a word on them, a word that we invited you to ponder in the coming year. Consider how it's working through your life. Is this ringing a bell? Anybody remember their star word? Well, today's text got me thinking about star words because the first time I ever tried this practice, the word I drew was perseverance. I taped it on my desk where I saw it most days, and through the ups and downs of that particular year, I reflected on perseverance, mine, and God's. By the time the next epiphany came around, I was eager for another guiding word for the year ahead. On the Sunday we chose our star words, I picked one out with a sense of anticipation, turned it over, and as soon as I saw the word, groaned out loud. My word for the second year in a row was perseverance. Very funny, God. In today's episode of Jacob's story, we learn that one of Jacob's superpowers is perseverance. Seven years he works for his uncle without pay so that he can marry Rachel. But the text tells us these years seemed but a few days because of his love for her. Finally, it's time for the wedding, which would have been a week-long feast, a celebration of dancing and eating and drinking, which maybe explains how he could have spent an entire night with his new bride before he realized it wasn't her, but her sister, Leah. And even though our translation says that Leah had lovely eyes and Rachel was graceful and beautiful, this is not an entirely accurate translation. It's more likely that the authors meant to contrast these sisters to suggest that Leah was the undesirable, unattractive one, while Rachel was the real prize because of her beauty. Now, if that offends you, it's worth remembering that such tropes have long been the staple of romantic comedies and dramas for as long as people have been writing stories, and the Bible is no exception. This is an ancient soap opera, remember. What's different and notable about this story is that Jacob, the trickster, gets tricked. His uncle Laban, remember the one who says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, shows that he and Jacob are indeed cut from the same cloth. 
He is every bit as cunning as Jacob. He not only deceives Jacob out of the bride he worked for seven years to marry, he breezily defends himself by reminding Jacob that it is not their practice to marry off the younger daughter before the older, just as Jacob, as the younger brother, was not supposed to get the birthright or the blessing. In this deliciously ironic turn of events, Jacob gets a taste of his own trickery. Yet even as Laban reveals the ruse, he offers Jacob what he wants. Spend a week with Leah, he says, and then you can marry Rachel as well, if you work for another seven years without pay. And without hesitation, Jacob agrees to this deal. Yes, he is a trickster, but he's also got that superpower of perseverance, and he's willing to wait. Now, there are many elements of this story that deserve our attention. The fact that Rachel and Leah are treated as pawns in Laban and Jacob's schemes, the fact that this story condones polygamy and also apparently slavery when Laban gives Leah a maid as a kind of wedding gift, and the fact that Laban's strategy to marry both daughters to the same man sets up a lifelong rivalry as the sisters compete for Jacob's attention and love and children. In all these details and more, this is a sordid story of desire and deception and the lengths we will go to get what we want. But it's also a story of what we learn when we finally get something we've waited and worked for and discover it's not quite what we expected. Judy Bloom's young adult novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, recently made into a movie. This was pretty much required reading for girls of my generation. In it, the protagonist, Margaret, moves with her family from New York City to the suburbs of New Jersey the summer before she starts sixth grade. At 12 years old, she's on the cusp of adolescence and all its changes. We follow her through the ups and downs of this transition, which seems to mostly involve waiting. Waiting to make new friends, waiting to fill out her first bra, waiting to get her first period, waiting for her crush to notice her. And during all this waiting, she keeps finding herself talking to God always beginning the conversation with, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. At one point, frustrated with her parents, betrayed by the person she thought would be her new best friend, and confused by all the changes happening to her and around her, Margaret begs, please, God, just make something happen. Whether or not it's an answer to that prayer, something indeed happens. Margaret's long-awaited trip to Florida for spring break to visit her beloved Jewish grandmother is canceled when Margaret's other grandparents, out of the blue, write and say they're coming to visit. Now, these grandparents are devout Christians who Margaret has never met because they disowned her mother when she married a Jew. During their visit, the other grandmother unexpectedly shows up at the door just in time for dinner, bringing her new boyfriend with her. 
After a meal marked by awkward silence, the adult conversation escalates into an all-out shouting match over whether Margaret should be Jewish or Christian. This is not what Margaret was hoping for when she asked God to make something happen. The morning after his wedding, Jacob discovers what most of us discover after achieving an outcome we have worked and hoped for, that getting what we thought we wanted rarely turns out to be as we expect. After the wedding, maybe not the morning after, but usually within a few decades, you discover the person you married isn't exactly who you thought they were. After the birth, there are long, sleepless nights, and not just because children keep us awake, but because we lie awake, worrying about them. After the election, there is the hard work of governing. After the thrill of getting a new job, there is navigating all the challenges of your particular organization, company, or institution. Even after joining a church, which we hope some folks will do this afternoon, there is the discovery that following Jesus in the context of a larger community often involves frustration, conflict, and disappointment. Justin Yop and Don Rosenstein work as clinicians at the University of North Carolina. They work primarily with terminally ill patients, but 10 years ago their work unexpectedly expanded. They happened to have a number of patients who were young mothers who died around the same time. And Yop and Rosenstein were trying to find a support group for the widowed fathers who were grieving their loss even as they cared for their children. But they couldn't find a group for that particular population, so they decided to start it themselves, even though they readily admitted they weren't bereavement experts. They designed a schedule of six monthly sessions, during which they thought they would offer many lectures on grief. For the first session, they let the fathers tell their stories. It was poignant and painful, but something remarkable happened. These fathers bonded and began to trust one another. A month later, when they gathered again, Rosenstein and Yop got ready to deliver their lecture. But first, one of the dads said, guys, I've got a problem. Friday night is the anniversary of my wife's death. I thought we would go to the cemetery and have a little moment. But my teenage daughter wants to go to a hockey game with her friends. And I don't know what to do. Yop and Rosenstein scrapped their lecture. They didn't need it. What they needed was a lot more than six sessions. Those dads ended up meeting every month for four years. When Jacob wakes up the day after his wedding and discovers Laban's deception, his uncle's advice is this, wait out the week and then you'll get Rachel if you work and wait for seven more years. Jacob, with that perseverance superpower, says, all right, I'll do it. She's worth it. And if the rest of his story is any indication, those 14 years of waiting and working, they work on Jacob too. He changes. This restless trickster learns something from staying in place, from working and waiting, from navigating disappointment when what he gets isn't what he expects. 
and when he experiences what it's like to be the one who's tricked. Jacob also discovers that God's blessing and promise cannot be stolen or grasped or even fully understood. God's promise will be fulfilled not in our time, but in God's. What are you waiting for that feels frustratingly elusive? What promise of God's feels just beyond your reach? Like Jacob, we are invited to wait, and while we wait, to work, to do what we can to bring about the things we most deeply desire, whether it is healing in body, mind, or spirit for ourselves or someone we love, or reconciliation where there is conflict, justice where there is suffering, or whether it's simply for the kingdom of God, that place where all people belong and all will be well, for the kingdom of God to come to earth. As we wait, it is tempting to get frustrated and cynical and despairing at the slow pace of change. But when you do, remember Jacob and that perseverance superpower. Keep working, keep hoping, keep waiting, trusting that the work we do works on us too, and that because of us, and sometimes in spite of us, God's promises will one day be fulfilled. Amen.